Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, Rob Fortress Fortney, former editor at Muscle Magazine International, former uh, thonged up, greased down bodybuilder, and uh, <laughs> strength enthusiast through the ages. You make the bodybuilding stuff sound so um, impressive. <laughs> So legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) And with us today, we have Jeff Stout. Uh, Dr. Stout is an associate professor, uh, let's see, University of Central Florida, is that right? That's correct. Uh, College of Education and Human Performance. Um, Jeff is a great guy to talk to because he has a background both in resistance exercise and uh, he does research with it. So we're going to pick his brain in just a minute, Uh, but we're going to start with some news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. The news has sort of a, a protein theme. Um, and the first part of it's a rant. I just want to get this off my chest because it ties in with a, a listener question that Rob's going to read us. I have been watching those survival shows. I don't know if you guys ever watched these, like Survivor Man, or there's a new one called Naked and Afraid on Discovery Channel. And the whole idea is they drop people in the wilderness and they have to survive. And one of the things that is just a recurring theme is the the people suffer, right, from hunger, from fatigue, until they find protein. And I just think that's that's funny because so often, at least in the circles that I've taught in with a lot of uh, sort of clinicians, health educators, and dietitians, protein usually gets poo-pooed, you know, or worse, even condemned in a lot of ways. I was watching it last night. And there was this guy and a girl. They drop them in the middle of a swamp. It's you know they're nude. They have no food. They have no fire. No fluids of any kind. And they are miserable. And they can barely function. And then finally, you know, they kill an animal. And just watching them rebound is just amazing. But I just think it's funny that it's always specifically protein and not just calories uh that they're so desperate for and seems to have such a rejuvenating effect. Hmm. Uh, anyway, I just think that's kind of interesting. And that leads us into a couple of questions uh from listeners. So we got two on uh protein and then there's one bit from Scientific American I want to uh, let everybody know we got from a listener. Um the first question was very straightforward and we can get Dr. Stout in on this. Uh we've heard this one before. We fielded this question before. Uh, how long does whey protein last in the fridge after you mix it? Jeff, do you want to take a stab at that? That is a good question because personally I have done it for up to three days. <laughs> okay. I'm ballparking with that. Um, I think the the number one concern I think we talked about before was it's really bacterial contamination, right? I don't think it's going to degrade like break down into a point that you the amino acids are gone i mean the amino acids would generally still be there it's not like creatine that will become something useless after several hours you know on the 
once you mix it up on the counter. Correct. Um, but I think it's really bacterial contamination, and I would say that's probably safe too. A couple of days in there, I would treat it a lot like milk. I mean, yeah. Jeff, you actually present on milk, I know. So, I mean, that's an 80-20 mix, I believe, of casein and whey. And, you know, milk will last in your fridge for a week. So I wouldn't sweat it too much, honestly. Um, I, I try to keep it dry until you can drink it. But I would, I would think if you drink it in a, a couple of days' time um, and, you know, smell it. If it is getting c- contaminated with bacteria, it's going to start to smell funny. <laughs> that's always, that's always a, just a good non-scientific thing with food. The smell, uh, smell, so, yeah. yeah, the smell test. The smell, smell test, test. Yeah. Now, you had a question, Rob. Do you have it there in front of you? I do. Uh, it's from a listener named Steve. It's kind of lengthy. But <clears throat> trying to focus more on being lean all the time versus bulk cut cycle. Still follow a lot of bodybuilding criteria. Diet, workout splits. My question is pertaining to protein carbs. He's in a nutrition class, which is just a step towards my quest for the same degree background as Lonnie. Oh, nobody will ever be where Lonnie is. But anyway, here's my problem. I listen to you guys every night on the way to work, and there seems to be a conflict of information. We read from a book by Nancy Clark every week and then get quiz on the material. This book teaches 1.7 uh, uh, grams per kilo of body weight. Blah, blah, blah. I'm pretty lean, but my weight loss is being hampered by something. I'm be, I've been taught one gram per pound of body weight since first following bodybuilding tendencies. However, the 2010 food pyramid and their focus on grains is a bit skewed, in my opinion. Anyway, this, this thing says his, for his height is telling me it needs, he needs 2,900 plus calories per day to lose two pounds a week. Um, the problem is the carbs versus protein. 404 carbs, 73 protein is the recommendation. Lonnie, okay. this cannot be right, can it? I, I run usually every day plus lifts, so I'm active. He wants to get from 202 to 187, and differences in info um, is, is confusing him. Please help clear this up. I'm looking at this from this aspect of I, if I cannot get ripped, ripped, how do I teach clients in the future? He's thinking more along the lines of 250, 200, 130 uh, for CP and F ratio for 3,000 calories a day and adjusting accordingly. There you go. So take it away. Well, I would think, well, first of all, I think good, good for him that he's starting to consider this sort of thing. Um, I, too, got different messages from the, the nutrition and dietetics department, which tended to be a little bit conservative or more than a little conservative about the total daily protein requirements. And then the exercise science department, which seems to be a little bit more um, positive. And I think maybe because the exercise physiology people, they look at the physiological effects of protein probably and not just sort of obsess over the uh, food guy pyramid or my plate or whatever iteration is going on now. Most importantly, I would say, and Jeff, you could chime in on this, but I would suggest that when he sees something as low as 73 grams a day or whatever it was, you got to remember that people who are lifting weights and are very physically active, they don't really fit the usual RDA, you know, for protein. Uh, your protein needs, based on research from all kinds of people, including Pete Lemon, who was my advisor for many years, is around double the RDA, you know, 1.6 maybe grams per kilo per day. Um, and you're just not going to see that, you know, if you use typical RDA values. Uh, but beyond needs, and I think this is where the physiologists are willing to get a little bit more uh, creative, perhaps, is 
there are metabolic effects from protein when you eat beyond needs for something just like nitrogen balance or you know some of the old ways that they would factor that in. Um, I don't know, Jeff, any thoughts from you about this, this guy and what he probably needs for protein and calories? No, I think his uh, general guideline of... Uh you know, around one gram or like you said, 1.7 grams per kilogram body weight uh, is sufficient. The only thing I would suggest is ensuring that he, each meal uh, has a minimum of 25 grams in it of animal-based protein in order to get that anabolic stimulus throughout the day. Uh, mm. You know, it's interesting because um, I'm also the associate chair of our department and one of the students came up to me and said, oh, one of your uh, nutrition uh, teachers said that protein wasn't important, and uh, I just let her go yesterday. I'm going to teach the class myself. <laughs> yeah, um, my goodness. <laughs> so, but they're an RD, and I don't know what it is, and that could be a show in itself. Um, why people are so um, scared of protein? I mean, it's this yeah. most amazing thing I've ever seen in my 25 years of teaching. And one of the things I do is I just say. You know, I ask any student, if you can find any data, human data on healthy subjects in which protein at a level of 1.5 or 2.0 grams per kilogram body weight caused your kidneys to explode or your liver to fail or your heart to stop, then you'll get an A in the course. And for 25 years, no one has found a single study yet. A very similar offer went out in my department, too, um, for those very kinds of things. I mean, the... In fact, the, the protein book that we advertised at the midpoint of this show, that's one of the things that, that one of the chapters discusses specifically is you'll hear everything from gout to dehydration to bone loss to kidney stress and those sorts of things. Um, but the evidence just isn't there to, to support that. I think a lot of that sort of came as a counterculture. I think there's a lot of dietitians looking at general population data. Um, they're not necessarily you know, factoring in population specificity, really. So I don't know. I, maybe, like I said, counterculture against overzealous athletes, you know, who are eating 400 grams a day. I've actually talked to some guys. I'm like, you know, I think you actually need more calories, buddy. You know, uh, <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, building blocks alone won't do it. You know, you can have a, a truckload of building blocks in your front yard, and it's not a building until uh, somebody comes along with the energy in his equipment, gas, electrical equipment, whatever, and builds the building. So you need energy to knit together those amino acids. Um, but yeah, the, it's amazing to me the, the almost professional cultural differences that you get. Um, and Nancy Clark, who, uh, Jeff, I know you've probably met her several times. Mm -hmm. I've met her a couple of times. Um, and I could be wrong, but my understanding was always she was sort of focused on endurance athletics. And, um, you know, she's very, very popular in dietitian circles. And I don't know. I don't necessarily see her being super pro-protein. Um, but if you're, it, you know, it's it's a calorie balance and, and protein issue. If, if the calories are, are appropriate, really, honestly, if you're in a hyper- caloric state or hypocaloric state, either way, protein's still going to take a central role, to be honest, whether you're trying to get lean and ripped like this gentleman or whether you're trying to gain, I would think. Well, you know, well, we're, when working with athletes, uh, the protein intake never changes. What changes are the other macronutrients, 
you know, controlling yeah. for calories and carbohydrates. But, you know, everybody says, oh, you got to consume more protein when you're cutting. Not really. It should be the same. The difference is that when you're gaining mass, you're adding calories and carbs and, and more fat. But when you're starting to lean up, you don't change your protein intake up. You keep it the same. You lower the calories. Yeah, I my thought with that is always – I mean, there is some early data from Gail Butterfield that if you eat grossly too few calories, protein needs may – increase because of metabolic efficiency or I don't know. But the, I, I think the most important thing is dose, right? I mean, if you look at protein almost like a dose, like like you said, John, right. 25 grams uh, per meal, and you'll do that four to six times a day or what have you, then you're getting that anabolic stimulus. And I just think you got to think of it more like a, a dose per meal instead of just obsessing over a uh, how much to get during the day, you know. Well, and another thing to think of is uh, the 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight is too low, even for the sedentary person. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, so my opinion is that the RDA, even for the sedentary person, uh, is too low, um, which is the result of some muscle loss as we age. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I have one last little piece here, and then we're going to ask Jeff about how he got into all this. Um, This is from listener Kalen. Just said this. It's from Scientific American. It says, your thoughts can release abilities beyond normal limits. It's by Osgun uh, Alisoy, Tuesday, August 13th. So this is spanking new. Uh, Essentially, let's see. Our cognitive and physical abilities are in general limited, but our conceptions of the nature and the extent of those limits may need revising. In many cases, thinking that we are limited is in itself a limiting factor. There is accumulating evidence that suggests that our thoughts are often capable of extending both our cognitive and physical limits. Now, I almost hesitate to read this because there's a lot of coaches that I think almost overemphasize, you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it sort of thing. But there seems to be a placebo effect in with all this that is uh, very true. I'm always interested to see what's the evidence, right? You could talk about uh, general coaching wisdom uh, like that, but what's the evidence say? And they actually look at a couple of studies from knowledge performance, like cognition, uh, vision. Um, here's an example. In an eye exam, we're used to experiencing problems at the bottom third of the eye chart, where the letters tend to get small. But what researchers did was they shifted the chart around, and um, it wasn't uniformly smaller and smaller as, as you go down. And people were actually reading smaller letters uh, in, because they didn't expect this to be hard, right? So they sort of mixed it up. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting to me that when they shifted around, people are actually able to read smaller letters because they're their perception of it is changed. And then this is where it starts to get very interesting, especially for our audience. We also tend to think our bodies respond to physical exercise in a mechanical way. We counter calorie intake, the calories we lose on the treadmill, etc. This was they drew this from a two thousand Harvard paper called Mindset Matters. It says room attendants uh, clean an average of fifteen rooms per day, each room taking twenty to thirty minutes. Um, essentially they took I think it was eighty four of these ladies uh, they told them that their regular work of cleaning these rooms was the equivalent of what the government recommends for physical activity. You know, so great job. You guys are, you know, working out in a sense at work. Um, and then they had another group that were simply not told that. So all of these 
uh, room attendants were doing the same amount of physical manual labor, but some of them were told that you know they're getting recommended amounts of exercise, and the other was not. Uh, the treatment group was monitored for four weeks. A control group of hotel room attendants, uh, again, were told nothing and similarly monitored. People in the treatment group lost weight. Their body fat percentage, their weight to, uh, waist-to-hip ratio went down, uh, and their systolic blood pressure dropped because they believed that they were getting recommended amounts of exercise in their work. Uh, the control group showed no improvement. These changes occurred despite the fact that the hotel room attendants' amount of work, amount of exercise outside of work, and diets stayed the same. So it's very interesting stuff. Um, this next was second example says research on placebos gives us clues about the mechanism. Antonella Pollo and colleagues asked people to lift a certain amount of weight before and after drinking caffeine in high doses. The liquid, in fact, contained no caffeine, but the weight was secretly reduced after the people drank the drink. That way, people learned to associate the liquid with less fatigue. This is mostly fatigue stuff. Later, when people lifted the original weight after drinking the liquid, they still experienced the less fatigue, the lesser amount of fatigue. So what they had done is conditioned these people that the drink will make it seem less difficult. Uh, and then when they actually upped the load, they were able to do it. So they tricked them. They got them to associate the drink with a feeling of lightness. Uh, and they, it says essentially central mechanisms, neural governors must have um, changed. You know, their brain chemistry changed. It says uh, placebo effects observed in clinical research via expectancies and learned associations uh, created by fake operations like we just saw or sham drugs, placebo effect essentially, change the chemistry and the circuitry of the brain. It says we can deliberately choose our mindsets to improve our abilities, both cognitive and physical. Uh, later quote here, it says people have significant psychological resources that go unused. The mind and body are not separate, etc. Um, and this whole thing, again, it starts to remind me of the typical coaching talk. But these are controlled experiments where people actually get better vision or physical activity kinds of improvements, training-like improvements. Again, some of those were a little crude, but um, simply because they were thinking about it differently. Uh, I don't know. Amazing stuff with the placebo effect. To me, it brings up a couple of things. I mean, A... You could manipulate this yourself. I mean, if, if you're not stupid and you don't overdo this with your training partner, but something Phil has said in the past I thought was clever, he'll put weights on for clients, and your training partner or a coach could do this in a non-uniform order. So instead of like 245s on a side and then a quarter on a side, something like that, he'll use 5s and 10s and, and mishmash it up, and people don't know that they're lifting very near or even above their one repetition maximum. And he can actually get better performance out of them that way because he's purposely removing the association, you know, that they normally hold. I just think that's very interesting stuff. Um, and I think similar things could be said with dietary supplements probably. I mean, the placebo effect like we're talking about here or the way you're looking at it, just like they did with the fake caffeine drinks, I imagine – other supplements as well, in addition to any physiological effect, you know, you can't count out the placebo effect. You can get very real outcomes with this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, and there it is, Scientific American, a little review on, you know, the placebo effect. I think there may even be a journal of placebo effects, actually. So, Rob, you're always talking about the psychology of stuff like that. What mm -hmm. do you think about that? Um, well, from my vantage point, there's no 
there's no question that uh, the link exists. And for people who don't um, consider how powerful that could be, they're losing out on a heaping loads of advancement they can make in whatever they're doing. So, mm-hmm. without question, without question, I think yeah. uh, you know if it, it's like that that saying, you know, if you if you if you truly believe you're king, you are king. You know what I mean, and you can, yeah. you can let that go in a wrong, or the wrong way, obviously. But if you, if you channel <laughs> that, if you channel that kind of thinking in the in the right way within reason, it certainly can uh, get you a long way. Well, I think that's why talking to someone like uh, Doctor Stout here is going to be important for that kind of stuff, right? You have to be realistic. Like, what's physiologically realistic? You can't just double someone's usual load and then say, "Here, you know." You, you don't know what the weight is or I've conditioned him or whatever. And, you know, then he tears something. I don't know. So you have to have some sense with all this with realistic time frames and, uh, you know, percent increase in load and all that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, Scientific American, August 13th, 2013, still looking at some of the, the deeper mechanisms. And, of course, you can change, right, your chemistry and even slowly the wiring uh, and that kind of thing. So. Um, I'm a coach uh, also for sport, mainly for my kids, and your perception affects them dramatically. So like you were saying, as a personal trainer, as a coach, whatever it may be, um, you know, how you feel about the situation will affect them and their performance. That's a good point. Humans are social creatures, right? If everybody else is believing something possible, it makes it easier for you to believe that. Yeah, because if they sense at, at any time, oh, man, you're not going to be able to do that, then they probably won't. But if you can condition yourself to be as positive and, and relaxed, they usually do better and, mm-hmm. and train harder. So the, the, the whole model called Central Governor Model, which is actually done a lot of research by Dr. Anoka out of South Africa, um, has looked at this and has done many experiments on fatigue and, and your perception of fatigue. And um, there is an interesting link, and that's a huge argument within the sports science field between physio- physiological fatigue and central governor model fatigue. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I remember the, they were playing with the central fatigue theory and branched chain amino acids and all kinds of things trying to get at, I don't know, Deeper mechanisms, I suppose. Now, that blurs the line, I suppose, between central, meaning is it motor cortex or, you know, or is it something psychological or is it something bloodborne or or whatever. But um, but in any case, uh, yeah, I, in, in fact, with the caffeine research that we've been doing lately, um, we have to be very careful. It's, it's very difficult to have a placebo group in high dose caffeine or energy drink kinds of studies. And I mean, we would actually have rules that scripted. Um, behaviors and encouragement words that we would use across groups and that sort of thing, purposely trying not to have that effect that you're talking about, Dr. Stout, which is, you know, people looking with anticipation and, you know, excitement in one condition when in, when they're drinking the, the decaf, you know, <laughs> right. you know, they're, people are just looking away and rolling their eyes, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's why it's so important in true double blind studies because if any of the investigators know, they have a tendency to treat the max test differently. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's so difficult with some of the, the coffee stuff we were doing because when you consume enough 
coffee or caffeine to really get jazzed. I mean, it's hard to keep that blinded. And then even the students that are in the lab, you know, they really need to be reminded to have no expression of, you know, because they're going to start to, even though it's double blinded and the, the researchers don't know either, you start to pick up some of these cues. So it's, yeah, it's it's very difficult to do some of that sometimes. Okay, so obviously you have expertise in this sort of thing. So let's let's talk about your background. So maybe to start with uh, who you are and why you got interested in what you do. Well, uh, I guess uh, sports, I guess in general, got me interested. I played every sport that you can think of. Um, ended up going to college on uh, a three sports scholarship, and um, but I was pre med. My senior year, I saw a brochure for a graduate degree in exercise physiology, and I didn't know that even existed. And so as soon as I saw that, and that was in 1988, I decided that um, I'm going to uh, go to school and and do that. So I changed my major in my last year of school. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I took 24 hours my first semester and 21 hours my second semester. Good heavens. And and I was still playing the sports uh, in order to get the uh, degree, and uh, then I went to University of Nebraska, and the rest is history. (laughs) So what would you describe your current focus as then? Is it muscle physiology? Um, What is it that you're most interested in, like, line of research? Well, um, probably... Right now, it is muscle physiology. It's muscle quality. I spent many years, and I still we still do research in the area of muscle fatigue um, and a lot of ener- uh, intervention. My my opinion is that uh, if you can uh, defeat fatigue, then you can improve your performance or gains from training. Because the reason we stop training, or the reason um, uh, we stop doing anything, or the reason we can't run a certain time, is because we're tired. And so I spent probably 20 years just publishing research on various interventions on improving or delaying fatigue. Now we're looking at more of the muscle quality, um, especially with the aging and even uh, in younger folks. But I'm still involved with the uh, ergogenic aid stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Now, did you used to power lift? Is that right? yeah, I, you know, after I uh, I played football, ran track in, in college, and uh, so we did a lot of Olympic lifts, and, and uh, then I decided in order to understand some of the other athletes, uh, sports I've never participated in was powerlifting, um, but I wouldn't call myself a powerlifter. A powerlifter is somebody who does it for many years. I just trained for one just to see what I could do. Uh, I did the same thing for uh, uh, bodybuilding, um, which uh, from a discipline standpoint is probably the most difficult uh, thing I've ever done in my life. Um, uh, but uh, it because it's a psychological game <laughs> yeah. with the diet and everything, just like you guys were talking about. Uh, so I, I did those uh, two things just to understand what those type of athletes go through, and um, uh, but yeah, just very limited. Yeah, hearkening back to what we were saying about protein, I think that's where sometimes you'll see a, a little bit different perspective depending on what kind of training a person had. You know, whether it's pure dietetics or exercise physiology or medicine or what what whatever. Um, 
if you dabble in these things yourself, you start to see firsthand the effects like you were saying of if you keep protein ample and fairly steady, you start cutting carbs out of your diet, you know, you start getting ideas about time frames as far as body composition, recompositioning and, you know, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it does give you a bit of insight, uh, maybe that goes uh, beyond just the pages of a book, you know. Right. Just, uh, you know, sort of experience what those athletes go through. I, I would never claim to be a bodybuilder or a power lifter because, I mean, most most of uh, those guys spend their entire life doing that and they experience a whole lot more than I ever did. But it was just an idea, you know, I just wanted to see uh, kind of what they felt and, uh, you know, and, and what you had to do to get really lean and, and uh, the train for the routines or the, the power lifting aspect of it. Um, I was surprised because I was a sprinter, um, how strong I got. I'd never power lifted before. And, uh, you know, it's back in 1989, I did my first power lifting meet after training for six months. And uh, it wasn't great. I mean, you guys crushed me in, in poundage. But, I mean, I still did a 660 squat uh, for, uh, six, uh, about the same in pull. And, um, my bench was 405. So there's nothing wrong with that. It, it was, oh my God, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, but then, um, um, right after that, somebody said, you got to try bodybuilding. So then I went and tried that as well. Uh, then I found out that, uh, you know, I'm never going to win either one of those sports. <laughs> so, so I went back to more an aggressive combat type sport and I started doing judo. Right. Now, have you done judo how long then? I've done it for about, uh, I'd say, 10 years. Oh. Okay. So I'm an old guy fighting other old guys. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun. Well, so they have master's categories in judo? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, Dr. Stout's going to educate us a bit on, I guess we'll just call it understanding muscle loss. Um, we'll define terms like sarcopenia and things like that, what interventions might work versus not work so well, and that sort of thing. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, 
because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for sixty nine U.S. dollars. So that's thirty one percent off the ninety nine ninety five uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. Sixty nine dollars. I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it uh, lower down the page. They have one hundred and eighty day rentals and one year rentals, so you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's Rob and Lonnie, and we have Dr. Jeff Stout with us, and he's going to teach us a bit about um, muscle loss. Some of it naturally happens with aging. We'll talk about how that relates to maybe muscle loss in other situations. Let's start with some definitions. Um, So what is sarcopenia? Well, sarcopenia literally means loss of flesh, and um, if you don't uh, include any of the cancers or any other kind of uh, disease condition. As we age, unfortunately, we will lose muscle. And um, but sarcopenia as a syndrome has been redefined to include strength. So not only is does it involve the loss of strength as we age, but it also I mean loss of muscle as we age, but also the loss of strength. Sometimes the strength goes faster than the loss of muscle and uh, and that's an issue with uh, the loss of uh, with sarcopenia sometimes when by the time we recognize they're sarcopenic or a significant loss of muscle faster than what's considered normal they've already lost a tremendous amount of strength so it's almost like uh, a little too late okay well let me ask you this i've i've often wondered about the the chicken or egg argument here so as we age, if we become less physically active, we lose muscle tissue. Uh, or is it that we lose muscle tissue so we're weaker and we're less physically active? Or is this a vicious circle? Well, uh, you bring up a very good point. Um, actually, uh, even if you were physically active, you would, lose, you would lose strength and muscle. I mean, that's just the way you know, we're put together. However, if you don't exercise then the rate at which you lose the strength and muscle is almost four times faster. That's a problem because there's a threshold. They say when you reach 70% of your peak muscle mass, so you lose 30%, then you become almost disabled or high risk of like a simple trip and fall, break a hip, go to the hospital, and usually when that happens, uh, your chances of coming out alive are slim. And that costs uh, the governments worldwide billions and billions of dollars. So if you stay uh, active, what happens is you slow that rate. You really never reach that 70% until you get to be about 80 or 90 if you stay active. Right. Now, 
so if it's not physical inactivity, what are some of the underlying causes? What's the etiology of sarcopenia? Well, I just gave a uh, lecture on this in Cancun. Yeah, it was real rough. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's there's a lot of factors. Um, the one is, of course, the neuromuscular, losing the uh, fast switch fiber or fast switch motor units. Um, but the biggest single criterion is diet and physical activity. Um, it seems like there's a relationship between protein intake and the loss of muscle over time. What's interesting is that when you consume the RDA of protein, you actually lose a lot of muscle, even if you're meeting the RDA every day. However, if you bump that up to 1.2 to 1.5, the rate of loss is much, much lower. Interesting. Yeah, I, you were mentioning regarding the reader question um, about that, you know, redefining the RDA and, and that sort of thing. And I've actually seen some reviews on that myself. The, the leucine requirements from the history, you know, of nutrition have been too low, protein requirements too low. I think it was, wasn't it Wolf's Lab? I, there was some reviews that came out of um, Bob Wolf's Lab about um, redefining needs. Like, why aren't we measuring maximal fat-free mass or muscle mass or what have you uh, as the the primary standard or the gold standard outcome for this instead of like nitrogen balance or something in the past, right? So scientists are trying to reassess what outcome we're really after when they define protein requirements. Is that right? Right, right. And in fact, there was a – I cannot remember the name of the uh, the French study, but um, they actually looked at – reevaluated some of the old RDA data and then they did another study and um, the nitrogen, you know, back then when they first developed these, uh, uh, I guess, these recommendations, it was sort of there were some flaws in the technique. And nitrogen in, nitrogen out sounds pretty simple, but actually it can be very complex. And so these French scientists actually redid it and found that uh, the minimum for sedentary persons should be at least 1.0 grams right. per kilogram body weight. And um, and then when they went back and recalculated some of the old RDA data, they found that it wasn't accurate. So it's, it's just, but it's so ingrained. It's almost like a, a, a political a, a religion almost. <laughs> you know, you, you uh, like you said, Nancy Clark, um, you know, I think she's just being politically correct. When uh, we, Joey Antonio and I gave a presentation many moons ago, um, at the ACSM, we got hammered, and by her too. But afterwards, she comes back. She goes, "Well, you know, I recommend, you know, supplements and protein. I just don't say it in public because of the political correctness." I think it stems from two things, and this is I'm, this is wild speculation, people. But I've actually written about this in review papers that I've published. But one, I think, is what I mentioned already. There is a bit of a counterculture. You know, I think dietitians. Uh, who have worked with athletes in the past, they got so sick of athletes overdoing protein, hundreds and hundreds of grams a day, uh, that they started to dissuade them. And that dissuasion became overaggressive, I think. Not only did they say that's not a, you know, that's so much that's not going to help you, you can't possibly synthesize all that into muscle, which would probably be true. Um, there is a point of, of waste in a sense. Um, 
But beyond that, they would then say, and it hurts your kidneys, and oh yeah, it'll give you osteoporosis, and, and, and. Oh yeah. And. yeah. So I think there's that counterculture they got carried away with on, on one side of things. And another one is, there's a famous Upton Sinclair quote that says it's, it's very difficult to make a man understand something um, when his salary depends on him, him not understanding it. So what I'm saying is it's very hard to teach, for example, let's say you work with a renal dietitian. A huge part of what they do is withhold protein from people. Mm. They are paid to withhold protein from their renal patients. Correct. So it's very difficult then to get that person in a positive mindset and say, you know, if you withhold protein, the outcomes aren't that much better. Or let's look at the literature, you know, which is actually a little bit more mixed even for renal patients than some people might might think. That's right. Um, so, but you see what I mean? That's going to be a tough sell to someone like that who is literally paid $40,000 a year not to revise their thinking about protein, you know, because that's their main intervention. If they can't withhold the protein from the renal patient, that's their main thing. I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, so again, that's almost conspiracy theory, but it does make me wonder when I see the, like you said, the, the political correct kinds of responses versus what sometimes people will tell you off the record. Well, you know, and, and like you said, uh, Lonnie, you and I would never recommend somebody consume uh, three grams per kilogram body weight. I mean, at when you're, that point, it gets, it gets to be too much. And not that I think that it's going to hurt you, um, but it's just, it's why, you know, it's one of those things of why, why you want to do it. Um, but the problem is we go back to sarcopenia is it's hard. These these uh, aging men and women have been told for the last two decades: if you consume too much protein, especially in you know your older state, your kidneys can't handle it, and you're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. So what happened is that when we look at the data from a global standpoint, the amount of uh, protein, uh, quality protein consumed throughout the day is. Um, is minimal and so what happens is that accelerates the loss of muscle um, even if they're active so that's an issue another um, potential mechanism of accelerated uh, muscle loss is when somebody starts to gain weight so we're sedentary we're losing muscle one of the things that the body uh, likes to do is maintain um, size if that makes sense uh, so what happens, we get a lot of infiltration of connective tissue and fat. Now, the problem with that is when you increase the intramuscular fat is that that releases inflammatory hormones and all kinds of other things that cause uh, the existing muscle to atrophy even further at a faster rate. Mm-hmm. Something called sarcopenia, sarcopenic obesity. That's even worse. Um, that sounds horrible. It is. <laughs> I, mean, Im- I mean, just imagine fattier t- con- connective tissue you're fattier and you have less muscle your metabolism starts to just cascade in a downward spiral i mean because you know where do you where you deposit the carbohydrates you eat you know there's all these inflammatory factors this just sounds like a train wreck to me it is and, and the thing is that uh um this is a big issue in fact this is so big that nestle abbott um Unilever, um, all the biggest pharma and uh, nutrition companies in the world are investing millions upon millions of dollars to find ways to counter this because you're not going to get a 75-year-old woman uh, 
to consume 1.5 grams per kilogram of protein a day and evenly spread throughout uh, the day. So now we have to come up with other ways in which we can help her maintain her nitrogen balance, you could say. Right. Now let me ask you one thing, and this is going to draw on some of Rob's background and your own in the strength sports, but we've talked before on the show about you about middle-aged powerlifters peak I mean, they seem to be at their strongest in their 40s, let's say, maybe even 50s. Um, that doesn't seem to fit with what you're saying. Can you maybe explain that? Well, now, I didn't talk about how we can counter this, but the okay. uh, it's interesting. There was a study looking at uh, master weightlifters, uh, master athletes, and they looked at their strength relative to mass and all this other stuff. And they looked at these 75-year-old weightlifters, and they had the muscle quality, the muscle mass, and strength that was equivalent to somebody who was 50. Wow. So basically what they're saying is that these 75-year-old people were physically the same as a 50-year-old person who didn't exercise. If I can just define them, when you say muscle quality, you mean the ability to generate force, like the muscles are not just the right mass, but they're strong and they're performing. That's what you mean by quality. Yeah, the quality is strength per unit of muscle. So strength per muscle. So and that ratio, another way to measure it is we use ultrasound to look at the intramuscular fat. So we can determine by the amount. So that's what's kind of neat. You can take somebody who's at 50-year-old who's out of shape, and um, you start working them out, and you can improve their muscle quality. And that's, a, that's the beauty of resistance exercise. Um, it is right now the most powerful way to reverse sarcopenia. Jeff, I was at a conference, um, NIH-sponsored conference in Chicago. This was years ago. I bet there were 300 people in the room. And I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, but all of them were saying, you know, you can only feed so much high-quality protein. You know, we've tried anabolic agents. We're trying this and that. And again, these are purely nutrition people, right? Mm -hmm. What can we possibly do? What intervention can we do to trigger protein synthesis? (laughs) Otherwise, we're just wasting it. It's going – the nitrogen's going to their urine. And I – crickets you know i raised my hand finally and i said <laughs> resistance exercise and, you know people are like nodding their heads like oh mm. and i'm thinking oh my god you know we have got to get more crosstalk between the nutrition people and the exercise scientists you know what i mean and again that's not some special bit of knowledge i had it was just dumbfounded me that there was this yeah you know que- is there even a question i mean Watch people who lift weights. They hypertrophy, you know. Um, look at some of the protein synthesis research. You know, it's it's clearly effective. Now, I know there's differences with age even with that, uh, potentially in the, the dose of protein and all that sort of thing. But it just blew my mind, like what you're saying, Dr. Stout, which is resistance exercise and then that 25 grams of protein multiple times throughout the day. There's your intervention, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so we have getting an optimal dose of protein, so at least 25 grams a day, maybe a little bit more than the elderly, as I've understood from some research. Um, What about what you've done? What have you done in the lab yourself 
um, just published, I accepted today, a six-month resistance exercise protocol with uh, HMB. And we had four groups uh, in that study, you know, HMB only, HMB or placebo, and then we had HMB plus resistance exercise and then placebo with resistance exercise. Um, we did a six-week study, uh, which we just published in Muscle and Nerve, um, looking at changes in the muscle architecture. Uh, just wow. like with an athlete, you see the pination angle, um, the muscle thickness, and the um, physiological cross-sectional area actually change, that can change in an elderly person as little as six weeks. Um, you know, we're looking at biomarkers. Uh, one of the problems with doing resistance exercise intervention or any intervention is that to see changes in lean body mass takes weeks, like a minimum of 10 to 12 weeks. Those studies can run anywhere from two to $300,000. So um, what we're looking at is, is biomarkers, which we have in review right now, um, a biomarker which is very sensitive to the restructuring of the uh, muscle. So, you know, there's a connective tissue that has to be reformed in order to fit the new and larger muscle fiber. And uh, when it does that, there's a metabolite of it that is released into the blood plasma. And we found that when that goes up, soon after you see muscle hypertrophy. So oh. it would be an early uh, uh, determination of how effective your intervention is, whether it's a drug, nutrition, or resistance exercise, or a combination of both. So that's going to be our, our next step to see, um, you know, what the intervention. Now, they've already done this with uh, growth hormone and I think testosterone and shown that uh, blood marker to go up significantly. Um, it's called P3NP. And uh, it's part of the uh, matrix that, that forms sort of like the skeleton of the muscle around the muscle cell, the connective tissue. So um, that's kind of exciting. Uh, the study, uh, the HMB study we just did, it was very interesting. Um, basically, with the resistance exercise, uh, these elderly men and women got incredibly strong. And what's interesting about it is that, and you guys know this as athletes, or if you've ever worked with anybody that was a former athlete, we had a few guys that were like former wrestlers, and we're talking back in the 40s, 45. And these guys haven't lifted in 30 years minimum. These guys got so strong. To give you an example, we did late press um, 1RMs, and uh, when they first started, they did like a two, probably a, 225, 230 leg press, which in reality is probably like 160 pounds because it's at an angle. Um, but by the end of the six months, that guy was pushing up 680. Oof. This guy was 82 years old. And he was because, because he was an elite um, uh, athlete. In his younger days, I really believe that those people that participate in sports um, or engage in, in, you know, pretty intense exercise, push them as a young person, actually have the better chance at an older age if they start to work out again. For some reason, they they stopped and they come back. They actually will come back pretty strong. It's like muscle memory, I guess. Yeah, that's what I've always used as the, my definition for muscle memory is once you have it, it seems to come back 
more rapidly somehow. And I don't know what would do that. Is it cellular? Is it connective tissue? Is it hormonal? You know, I don't know. But uh, I think that as a young person, I think this is very important why um, uh, people going through puberty, <laughs> young kids, participate in a sport instead of sit around eating uh, uh, donuts and chips and playing video games. Because I think uh, there's, a, there's a science out there called epigenics. And a lot of people have only seen it like when the womb, you know, when you're deficient in a certain environment or you, you eat something that deforms or affects the baby, right, from a genetic standpoint. Well, I think uh, that happens through another phase, either the first phase, first year of, of life and also through puberty. And for boys, that, that change, that p- genetic potential uh, change can happen over a five-year period. In girls, it's three um, we know this happens with fat cells. Um, if you eat the wrong diet and uh, wrong calorie intake, you get something called hyperplasia obesity, where you actually can increase the number of fat cells. I think this happens in the body, and the body's being programmed. And so later in life, when you decide to really hit it hard again or whatever, your your body in early age was already set. You programmed it. Right. So you're saying you're permanently more or less turning genes on or off that set the stage for later. Yes, that's true. For look at look at uh, what happens, uh, you know, when a young woman um, through puberty avoids milk. Well, she's greatest chance of, of getting osteoporosis. However, we know when young women drink enough milk, take in enough calcium, vitamin D, they are less likely to have issues with osteoporosis. Why is that? You know, so what you do as a young person is going to affect you later in life. Another thing that we've been working on is, okay, what about those people who didn't exercise or didn't do anything and they're so frail, they can't even um, resistance exercise because there is a point at which you become so frail that exercise, uh, resistance exercise could be do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? And so part of the second part of that study looked at HMB. Now HMB, to be honest, really didn't do much to help the effect of resistance exercise. But what was interesting is the group that supplemented HMB without exercise actually gained almost two kilos of muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, they their muscle quality went up significantly greater than the the placebo group and the muscle quality almost matched the changes saw in resistance exercise. All right, Jeff, I got to ask you then because I trust your opinion on this. Yeah. When when I first started hearing about HMB years ago, um, I think it was Steve Nissen's lab and yep. there was positive effects and then other labs weren't showing the same thing. Now there's like this renaissance and uh, my understanding is there based on at least some recent work, that maybe it has an anti-catabolic effect in addition to the protein synthetic effect? Or can you shed some light on this? I mean, obviously you're, you're explaining here that HMB has an almost training-like stimulus. Well, it, I mean, it's interesting because when somebody's older, uh, they're resting, um, I guess you'd call it protein metabolic balance, is negative. So um, they actually are more – they're in a greater anabolic state than, than even you and I are. Um, of course, I'm getting – I'm approaching that uh, <laughs> anabolic state. But uh, – um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know they're not getting in those three high-quality meals a day with protein. Um, so they're in this high catabolic state, and you're right. It seems to be most effective um, – 
and a, and a catab- you know when somebody's in a catabolic state that's why you're seeing all the positive effects like with uh, HIV patients cancer patients um, you're seeing this incredible um, uh, you know intervention and to be honest I was skeptical too but then when I really dug into the literature and those people and their study designs were awful I mean um, and uh, you know every single study that didn't find an effect didn't measure HMB in the blood or urine. Every single study we do, we always measure the HMB in the blood to ensure compliance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every single study that actually measured um, HMB actually saw an effect. So that's part of the problem. And also it's very subtle. I mean, uh, you know, in, in there's a recent study in very elite level um, weight trainers who were intentionally overtrained, and they saw a benefit from HMB. So HMB is one of those things that when you put yourself in metabolic stress, like for me, I think that a bodybuilder, really uh, high volume of training, leaning up, this is perfect. Okay, now that's the gold nugget that I was looking that's, for. So. That's that's perfect. Even with athletes, I deal with athletes that have to cut weight dramatically, and they lose a tremendous amount of strength and uh, muscle. And they've shown research to actually, uh, they actually shown H and B in these athletes to uh, kind of attenuate that loss of strength and that muscle and accelerate. And this is something that's new. We're finding out that H and B actually has an effect on fat, fat metabolism. That's one thing we found with a group that was resistance exercise. They lost a significant amount of fat mass, gained lean body mass. Um, so, and none of them were on a diet. We didn't tell them to go on a diet. So, and the, the resistance training only group got stronger, gained muscle, but their fat mass didn't change. Now wait, was this in the overtrained young guys or in the older? This is an older. Sorry, I'm okay. bouncing back and forth. But the well, the reason I want to, I just want to clarify is because, like we were talking about with total grams per day, if you want to look at it that way, population specificity just seems like such a huge deal. So I just don't want young guys listening to think that HMB all the time, even even if they're in a off season state with plenty of rest and everything else. I mean, it may be helpful, but probably not as helpful as if they were dieting hard and training their butts off. No, you know, and it's interesting. I don't know. Have you have you read the Wilkinson study um, where he compared leucine to HMB equivalent doses? Yes, actually. That's the one I was referring to where the, the leucine had a more anabolic effect, but it didn't seem to have the anti-catabolic effect of the HMB. Is that right? Well, it was interesting because the you're right. It had a greater in percent, but it wasn't statistically different. Whereas the HMB actually um, uh, had a 50% attenuation and catabolic effect. So um, it, it gives you the combination of both. And there's also some rat data out of Spain that shows that when you block leucine's ability to convert or metabolize into HMB, it has zero anti-catabolic ability. Oh, mm-hmm. so leucine has uh, uh, is a great amino acid, obviously, and it has multiple ways of stimulating uh, muscle hypertrophy through the insulin. Actually, some people believe through another uh, pathway stimulating the mTOR, and then also metabolizing down into HMB. Gotcha. 
Okay, well, we are just about out of time. Uh, that was good. Uh, let me just – so we already covered sort of tips, I think. Um, the question I often have, we have a lot of listeners who are sort of middle-aged. Where do they fall between the young guys and the old guys? Should we look at ourselves as late 30s and 40-somethings as being in that generally catabolic state or because we're either new or experienced lifters – we're not so much in that catabolic aging sarcopenic kind of you know leaning that way yeah you really don't get into the uh the sarcopenic risk until about 60 so but you know that doesn't mean um you know we shouldn't you know uh exercise and work out in fact uh, i think we'll go back to scientific american and the psychology and say you should think of yourself as an 18 year old and you're young and, and uh, you keep just working out and doing your thing. I mean, um, I don't think uh, anybody should not try to work out to the best of their ability. And, and you need to really push yourself in the gym. And resistance exercise should really be a foundation. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of endurance exercise, but endurance exercise isn't going to get it done as far as maintaining your muscle throughout your lifespan. Right. I think that's where we will probably differ a little bit with Nancy Clark and other people that are, you know, geared in that direction, probably. Well, look at them. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope, <laughs> All right. I hope I taught you guys something. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. I know. I, I know both you doctor types are. We're just waiting for the fortress to pipe up and uh, bring bring your PhDs up to a better better standing. Yeah, but, drop uh, the knowledge bombs on us. You know, I'm doing my doing my best. It's great talking with you guys. All right. Well, we're, yeah, we're out of time. So thanks, everybody. We'll um, we'll be back next week. I think we're going to get um, Jude back on with Phil and I because uh, I think Fortress, alas, will be missing next week. But we'll see you next time. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the -the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness 
or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.